0: Uh, Before getting to the message, uh, all of us have opinions, and uh, many of them tend to be subjective. Uh, I may love what you despise, or it could go either way. So we get lots of opinions, and in the life of the church, that often comes up in the kind of music we use or the volume of that music. So we've had several comments lately, and what I would ask is this that if you have comments, I don't say complaints because I know that wouldn't happen. If you have comments, if you have opinions that you'd like to share, would you share those with me? That means that one person will get them and if you can believe this or not, there's oftentimes there's opposing desires for what we do. But as a church we actually aim to have music, volume, teachings, etc. so that everybody comes in and gets something that's meaningful and helpful. We don't want anybody going away offended because we've chosen songs or we've got volume levels or whatever that that are just hard for folks, okay? So so if you have something along that line, we want to know for sure. We just want one person getting it so that we're getting all that information together, okay? With that, um, starting this morning, I want to read a short section from one of my family's favorite authors and from one of our favorite books. Uh, C.S. Lewis's book *The Great Divorce* is probably not one of his best-known works. Probably the children's fictional books are. <clears throat> this was one of our favorite ones, though, and to set up the the short section that I'll read, uh, this is a fictional account about folks in hell uh, taking a day trip on a bus to the outskirts of heaven. And in Lewis's account, hell is just this gray, dreary, grimy place. It's normal to the people that are there. It's not like the biblical version of hell. It's a gray, grimy, dingy place. And it's huge because in hell, people can imagine what they want, and it sort of appears, but it's not very real, not very substantial, but no one wants to live near each other. So hell is this huge place. But on a day, a bus comes down, and they can get on and take a day trip To heaven, And so as we pick up the story here, they've arrived on the outskirts of heaven and the guy telling us his story is on the bus as he sees the people from hell, outskirts of heaven, starting to get out of the bus and figure out what this is like up here in heaven. And this is what he says. At first, of course, my attention was caught by my fellow passengers who were still grouped about in the neighborhood of the omnibus, though beginning some of them to walk forward into the landscape with hesitating steps. I gasped when I saw them. Now that they were in the light, they were transparent, fully transparent when they stood between me and it, the light, smudgy and imperfectly opaque when they stood in the shadow of some tree. They were, in fact, ghosts. Man-shaped stains on the brightness of that air. One could attend to them or ignore them at will, as you do with the dirt on a windowpane. I noticed that the grass did not bend under their feet. Even the dew drops were not disturbed. Then some readjustment of the mind or some focusing of my eyes took place, and I saw the whole phenomenon the other way around. The men were as they always had been, as all the men I had known had been perhaps it was the light, the grass, the trees that were different, made of some different substance, so much solider than things in our country that men were ghosts by comparison. Moved by a sudden thought, I bent down and tried to pluck a daisy which was growing at my feet. The stalk wouldn't break. I tried to twist it but it wouldn't twist. I tugged till the sweat stood out on my forehead and I had lost most of the skin off my hands. The little flower was hard, not like wood or even like iron, but like diamond. There was a leaf, a young tender beech leaf lying in the grass beside it. I tried to pick the leaf up. My heart almost cracked with the effort and I believe I did just raise it. But I had to let it go at once. It was heavier than a sack of coal. As I stood recovering my breath with great gasps and looking down at the daisy, I noticed that I could see that grass not only between my feet, but through them. I also was a phantom. Who will give me words to express the terror of that discovery? Golly, thought I, I'm in for it this time. That's understatement, isn't it? This is a great comparison where Lewis is showing us, kind of giving us a fictional account. What might it be for somebody to attain the, the perimeter, at least, of heaven? And what would it be like for our humanity in comparison to the glories of heaven? And what the guys on the bus found out was life seemed normal to them in hell. They seemed normal to each other but when they got to heaven, the glories of heaven revealed themselves as they truly were in a way they couldn't see otherwise. They were unfit for the glories of heaven compared to the, he calls it solider, compared to the solid glory and reality of heaven, these guys paled into insignificance. The glory of heaven revealed them for the inglorious selves that they really were. Glory is the key word that we're gonna use this morning I'm not sure what you think of when you think of the term glory. We typically are talking about fame or honor or something that's praiseworthy, something has glory. If you look in the Old Testament, when the Hebrew is translated glory, it's typically from the word kavod, and it means heavy. It means materially heavy, and and it's an inference that something is so significant in and of itself, it has a splendor, it has a glory. Sometimes you'll hear people talk about other people with the term gravitas. They have a gravity. They are a significant person. They affect the lives of those around them because of who and what they are. That's the thought here. To go to the New Testament, the New Testament Greek term is doxa. And it literally means a good opinion, but sometimes it means shining or splendor also. So when we're talking about glory, we're talking about a significance That is somehow at the heart of who and what we are. And we might also be talking about a splendor or a light that visually perhaps you might see. And you'll see this is the way it's used sometimes here in Scripture. But the theme this morning is glory. There's a passage in Daniel 10 that's interesting along this line. In Lewis's account, when these guys from hell get to the outskirts of heaven, they realize we just we don't belong here. We can't stand up here. We're threatened here. Well, in Daniel 10, there's an account when a messenger from heaven approaches the prophet Daniel. He's standing on the banks of the Tigris River. And this messenger from heaven addresses him. And you see that Daniel ends up having the same kind of inadequacy in front of a messenger from heaven that these ghosts felt here. Now, it's not actually clear if this is God the Son in temporary form. The language is such, as you'll see later, that it may very well be. It's not always easy to know if it's God the Son appearing temporarily or if it's another angel, a messenger from heaven. But listen to this from Daniel 10. He's on the bank of the river, and he says, I lifted up my eyes, and I looked, and there's a man clothed in linen. He's got a gold belt around his waist. His body's like barrel. It's a semi-precious stone. It's somewhat translucent. The colors vary a little bit. His face looks like lightning. His eyes like flaming torches. His arms and legs gleam like burnished bronze. The sound of his words is like the sound of a multitude, not a single voice, but like a crowd speaking all at once. He says, I alone saw the vision. The men with me, they didn't see it, but they're terrified. Something is there, and they're terrified, and they run. He says, I'm alone. I saw the great vision. No strength was left in me. He says, my radiant appearance. My radiant, Daniel says, my radiant appearance. He's not bragging on himself. The appearance of my glory, he says, was fearfully changed. Have you seen somebody who's happy in a moment and some news of disaster hits and their face looks normal one moment and you can just see the blood and the life drain from it? That's what's going on here. Overawed, overwhelmed. He says, I retain no strength. I heard the sound of his words and as I heard the sound of his words, I fell on my face in deep sleep with my face to the ground. The glory of the heavenly messenger is so overawing physically, he cannot stand up. He falls asleep. And not a normal sleep, he's he simply outclassed by something, the glory of which is so great, he simply can't even stay conscious here in this guy's presence. So, so glory is, it's a, it's an internal significance. It might be an external shining or splendor also. And guys, believe it or not, this is your future and mine, and this is what we're going to develop this morning, that you and I, anybody who's in Christ, is headed to a future glory that that if we saw, this comes up at the end, if we saw each other today in our future glory, we just wouldn't believe it. In fact, we couldn't stand each other's presence. If I was in my mortality, and you were in your glorious splendor, I I probably couldn't even stand in your presence. That's the end to which we're going. The inadequacy of our mortality is going to be removed. And think of Lewis's comparison. I love the smudge on the glass. So insignificant in heaven. It's like a smudge on the glass. The ghostly nature of our fallenness is going to be replaced by heavenly splendor and glory. So this is the last of our uh, series. I'll try again. Okay, thanks. Uh, foundation. And we've, this is the seventh and last, where we've looked at um, teachings or doctrines in Scripture and then said, what does it look like to put this into action in our own lives? And, and this is all out of Matthew 7:24, when Jesus said, The wise person who builds a house on a solid rock foundation is taking in God's Word and doing it. And so in this context of glory, what does it look like for you and I to, one, understand what the end of our existence is? Not that it ends, but what is the end to which we are living and moving? God says it's glory. And if we take that in, what are the implications for us now? What does it look like to take in what Jesus says? what God's Word says about Jesus' glory and ours, what are the implications for the way you and I live our lives out now? now? You guys know, if you're a human being, you have a glory. You have an image of God glory. I'm going to give up on these things eventually. Uh, Psalm 8 verse 5 says, uh, You've made Him, David says, made Him mankind. You're a little lower than the angels, and you've crowned Him with glory and honor you know from from the point of origin when God makes us in his image we have in our humanity in God's image we have a a glory but you and I know today that that glory is marred it's twisted it is deformed The, the image we bear of God today is not what it originally was and it's certainly not what it will be in the future either we start with the glory but guys for those who embrace Christ in faith Jesus says he is going to give us a transformation that will give us a glory similar to his own. This is not true for those who reject Christ, who reject God's offer of salvation. This came up in Sunday school earlier. For those who exercise faith in Christ, your end is a glory that can only be hinted at now, that Lewis was trying to get at as well. If you've got your Bibles, you can open up. Hopefully, you have at least a study sheet. But I'm going to start in 2 Corinthians 3. We're going to march through a few passages. I want to make sure that we understand that this is what God teaches us. This is what Jesus wants us to know about our future. This isn't Mike making up a nice concept for Sunday morning. In 2 Corinthians 3, 18, the setting here, 2 Corinthians 3 and 4, Paul's been talking about the glory of the old covenant that Moses was the intermediary of, made at Sinai with God in Israel, the glory of that covenant, and he compares it to the glory of the new covenant Jesus made with us. And basically he says this, when Moses was on the mountain, he was in God's very presence. And seeing God, being in God's presence, Moses took on some of the radiated glory, as it were, of God so that when he came down from Mount Sinai it said when the Jews looked at him his face shone physically there was a splendor or a glory that came off of Moses because he'd been in God's presence but part of what happened was this the longer he was away from the presence of God the glory on his face faded so he put a veil over his face and that's the context for this verse So Paul says of of the New Covenant and of you and I as Christians, he says this, we all, not just Moses now, we all with unveiled face, we're we're not hidden, there's nothing between the Lord and us, beholding the glory of the Lord, and we behold his glory in the scriptures and in worship and in prayer, beholding the glory of the Lord, we are being transformed like Moses was into the image, same image, from one degree of glory To another. Paul says what was true of Moses in the presence of God, taking on the very glory, the countenance of God Himself. Paul says that's what's occurring today for Christians. As we behold God today, we are being transformed from glory to glory, towards the end to which God is leading us to a glory just like Christ. That's going on for us today. The glory Moses had faded. The glory of the new covenant and the glory that's at work in your life and mine never ends. Now for us, your faces don't shine, and mine doesn't either. You don't see this on the outside, right? I mean, you can't pick Christians out because their faces are glowing. The transformation for us is internal. It's spiritual. It's moral. It's the character and life of Christ within. There's a transformation going on as we behold God as we behold the Lord, just like Moses. If you go to Colossians 3, this is set in a little different context. Guys, you know one of the most important concepts in the New Testament is is the concept of being in Christ, that believers don't just follow the example of Jesus. Jesus says He's in us and we're in Him. In Christ is this key phrase and it's a key concept in the Bible that Christians aren't nice people who live moral lives. Christians are people whose lives have been revolutionized. Their life is in Christ. Christ's life is in them. They're new people. They're not the same people. We want to make sure we get that or this doesn't make sense. So because we're in Christ and because Christ is in us, Paul says this in Colossians 3, set your minds on the things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ and God. We're in Christ When Christ, who is your life, appears, you also will appear with Him, and you don't just appear with Him, you appear with Him in glory. When Christ appears, we're not getting into timetables and prophetic elements about when Jesus returns and what the resurrection looks like, all the second coming issues. We're simply focusing on the fact that when He appears, when His church is called to Him, you appear with Him in glory. You have that future splendor as soon as you see Christ. You see the same thing in 2 Thessalonians 2. Paul says there, God chose you, the Thessalonian believers, by implication you and I today, as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit. The Holy Spirit is setting you apart for God and belief in the truth. To this he called you through our gospel. Why? He says, so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Why are you saved and why is God sanctifying you and me today? Because he intends us to share the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the end to which all of God's work in us is leading us. It's to a glory and a splendor that is like Christ himself. You see this also in Romans 8. Uh, Romans 8 has a famous uh, memory verse, right? For most of us, you go through the hard knocks of life and you memorize Romans 8 so that you can remind yourself that God causes all things to work together for good. To those who love God and called according to His purposes. Life's throwing us a curve and we quote that verse, but listen to where the passage is meant to take us. Those whom God foreknew, He predestined to what? To what are you predestined as a believer, as a Christian? You're predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son. You're predestined to be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. We will bear the family resemblance of Jesus here seen as a brother. We will look like our older brother Jesus through this transformation. We will share his glory. Those whom he predestined, he called. Those whom he called, he justified. Those whom he justified, he, this is past tense, he glorified. This, again, this is the in Christ. Christ is glorified in heaven today. If you're in Christ, you share Christ's status today. Jesus is glorified. So Paul can say, past tense, you and I, believers in Jesus, already have been glorified. We simply haven't come into the benefit of it yet. But if you're a Christian and Jesus is glorified today, and he is, you can be absolutely assured you will share in the future that full transformation in which you will share jesus own glory that's your future in mind the last one i want to share just to make the point is first john 3 verse 2 the apostle there says we're god's children now you know again if you look at anybody physical appearance can you pick out children of god from those who aren't you can't right it's not physically determined you are God's children now he says what we will be for the future version of ourselves has not yet appeared but we know when he appears we will be like him again that when Jesus appears and when you see Jesus you will be like him and if you go to 1 Corinthians 15 Paul there talks about it happens in the twinkling of an eye That there's going to be a moment, if you're alive or if you're dead, there's going to be a moment of total transformation in which we will be changed quicker than an eye can blink. And we will go from this current mortal status with sin and with the, think of the smudges on the glass, that's the version of our glory now. You're going to be transformed in an instant into a glory that looks like the Lord himself. So like Moses shining with the glory of God, like the glory of the resurrected Christ, that's what Christians are heading for today. That's our end. That's the work of God in Christ in your life and mine. It's this future glory. Now, there's a challenge on that because you say, what does that look like? What does it, what does it look like to become oh Too much help. That's uh, one too far, sorry. The, the point is that the, the distance between the future glory and the current state of things is so great that Paul essentially says it's incomparable. The, your future glory will be so great compared to your existence now that it will be hard to imagine that one started as the other. And the way he defines this is he says, if you took a kernel of wheat, this is from 1 Corinthians 15, he said, if you took a seed, now if you like flowers, a flower seed, or if you're a farmer, might be a wheat seed, that seed in the palm of your hand is this small, insignificant thing. But you plant it in the ground, and it grows to be this lovely flower. Or if it's wheat, it grows up to be this tall, glorious stalk that blows in the wind. It's a lovely thing to look at. It's got all that wheat on top. And if you take the plant and compare it to the seed, you say there's no comparison. No one would know that little dull thing in your hand could produce the glory that it becomes future. And that's what Paul says is true of us. He says, basically, it's hard to believe, it's hard to conceive what you and I will be like in the future by looking at who and what we are now. You go further in the passage, we become imperishable, we have glory, we have power, We also have this spiritual element to our body. You Remember in the resurrection, Jesus could eat fish on one hand. He could invite Thomas to put his hand into his side. He was physical, but he could also appear and disappear in a moment, and you didn't have to open a door to let him in. There was a spiritual dimension to his body that wasn't true before, and we will have some element that's true of us spiritually in the future with those physical bodies that isn't true now. So he says, just as we've borne the image of the man of dust, and the man of dust is the first Adam, Adam and Eve, that first pair from which we've all come, will also bear the image of the man of heaven. All of us, no matter who you are, no matter who your parents are, you look in some degree like your parents, and you can't help it. And sometimes we love that, and sometimes we don't love that. But you look like your parents because you're from them. And when we think of that, Paul says, just as it's true physically, it's true spiritually. And you will look like Christ because your new point of origin, your rebirth, is in Him. You will not be able to help it. You're going to look like Christ, your new source. Uh, 2 Corinthians 4, we're jumping through quite a few verses this morning. Turn there if you want, 2 Corinthians 4 and 5. Paul there is talking about the glory of the gospel in 2 Corinthians 4. And he says, as glorious as this message is, you and I contain that glory in an earthenware pot. We're like clay jars. We have no glory. The glory is what's inside. The glory is the truth and the reality of the gospel inside us. It's not the clay jar on the outside. So he says in that, with that perspective, he says, our outer self is wasting away. That's our body. That's our clay jar. Our outer self is wasting away, but our inner self, the new new creation life within, is being renewed day by day, and this momentary light affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory. He says, beyond all comparison. Again, the thought is the transformation of glory based on your suffering and mine now, little as that might be, it produces a glory that you'd say, I can't see how that glory came from that little bit of suffering or those labors for the Lord. I don't see how that glory ever started with that little thing. But that's what he says is going to happen. And 2 Corinthians 5.1, Paul says, Our current existence is like living in a tent. And God has a house, has a residence, has a mansion for us to move into. So now, back to the image. So if we're trying to figure out what that looks like, if you're in Marvel Comics in World War II era, you know, you're thinking of the Steve Rogers guy, the short, scrawny kid who can't defend himself and can't get into the army. And somehow through the miracle of science, science fiction, he becomes this big, muscled guy who's indestructible that we call Captain America. And if you look at one versus the other, you say there's no way that guy came from this guy. But that's the thought. The comparison is hard to believe. Now, Lewis... In The Great Divorce, he's got an image for this too, and thanks. Um, His image, probably the best-known image in uh, in his story. In the story, as the shades from hell are walking about there, the outskirts of heaven, one of them is described as a dark, oily ghost. This guy is unclean. He's morally unclean. And he's got a red lizard on his shoulder that is morally unclean. And the lizard's always whispering these little things to him, unclean things, that on one hand he loves and on the other hand he hates. And a shining, angelic, heavenly creature approaches him. And as he does, the guy says, I am so sorry, I know something, we don't belong here and we're going to go back to the bus, and we'll get out of here, and you don't have to worry about us. I know what this guy's saying. It doesn't fit up here. And the angel engages him in conversation and basically says, if you like, I will kill the lizard on your shoulder that keeps you from fitting in here in heaven. And the guy is just not sure about this at all. It's all he knows, right? For you and I, don't you struggle with sin? Some sins, they're, they're the thing that on one hand you hate them, on the other it's like it's what I know. It's hard to turn loose of. And he's going back and forth. Well, finally he relents and he tells, he's exasperated. He tells the angel, do it, go ahead. And so the shining light reaches out and grabs the lizard and kills it. And the lizard and the man fall down. And as our friend is watching, the guy gets up out of the shrubs he's fallen into, but he's not a dark, oily figure anymore. He looks kind of like a Greek god. And that lizard, he watches as the lizard is transformed, And it's not this red thing anymore, but it's growing and it becomes this glorious white stallion with with golden mane and tail. And the transformed Greek god jumps on the transformed lizard horse and they ride further up and further in into the realms of heaven because they share the glory of heaven now. They're fit for that country. They fit in. And that Lewis is getting at the transformation from one to the other looks impossible. But in fact, that man, the greasy, oily guy, becomes the Greek god, so to speak. The lizard is transformed by God's grace into this magnificent creature. But the distance between the two is so great, it's hard to imagine. We're sort of grasping at straws even as we talk about these things. If you look in Revelation 1, if we say, what does Jesus' glory look like today? Revelation 1 is probably the clearest picture we have. There's another picture in Revelation 19, but Revelation 1 is probably the most personal. And it describes Jesus pretty much in the same language as the messenger from heaven that approached Daniel in Daniel 10. And it says he's in the midst of seven lampstands. He's clothed with a robe. He's got a golden sash around his chest. He's got hair white like wool, like snow. His eyes are a flame of fire, feet shining like bronze. His voice, like the roar of many waters, in his right hand, seven stars representing the churches. From his mouth came a sharp two edged sword. His face was like the sun shining in its full strength. If you look for images on this stuff, they're so cheesy that it's like, don't bother, don't even bother. And everything, if you notice John's language, it's all simile. He says it's like this. I can't quite describe it, but it's like this. And it's glorious, and he's splendid. I can't exactly define it for you, but it's like this. Looking at him is like looking at the brightness of the sun itself. That's what it's like. But also, there's this glory that can't be seen. There's an internal, if you will, there's a kavod, there's a glory that's true, not just to this external outshining, but who and what Jesus is in and of himself. John has the same experience that Daniel had. He simply falls out, he just falls down. He cannot stand, his mortality could not stand in the glorious presence of Jesus. So that's the image we have of Jesus. It's an external one described on one hand, but it's an internal one as well because it's who and what he is. And this is something of what we're trying to grasp when we say, what does our future image and glory in Christ's image, what does that look like? That's part of it, at least. So we're going to share Jesus' glory. That's wild. You know, God puts on flesh, that's wild. Dies for our sins, crazy. Takes on this this victorious glory and then says, I'm going to give that to you. You're going to share my glory. That's wild. Part of the issue then becomes, what do we do? What do we do with the fact that you and I are going to be in the glory of Christ himself? I'm going to share, I'm going to read something from Lewis's paper, a talk he gave. One of my favorites of his short talks called The Weight of Glory. When he's considering this same question, that, humani- that, that redeemed humanity is headed for a transformation which we share the very glory of Christ, he talks about one of the key implications. And he says this, "...it may be possible for each to think too much of his own potential glory hereafter. It is hardly possible for him to think too often or too deeply about that of his neighbor." I might get caught up. I don't think I don't know anyone who does this first, by the way, that gets so caught up about their future glory it throws them off. But even if we could, he says, you couldn't think too much about the future glory of your fellow believers and fellow Christians. He says the load or weight or burden of my neighbor's glory should be laid daily on my back, a load so heavy that only humility can carry it and the backs of the proud will be broken. That's the only way you can carry someone else's glory, the the reality of their future transformation. He said, it's a serious thing to live in a society of possible gods and goddesses. Now think of the great divorce, the transformation of the greasy guy into this guy that looks like a Greek god. In a society of possible gods and goddesses, to remember that the dullest and most uninteresting person you talk to may one day be a creature, which, if you saw it now, You'd be strongly tempted to worship but if we saw each other in our future glory now we might want to bow down and worship the glory it would be so intense and amazing he says or a horror and a corruption such as you now meet if at all only in a nightmare the unredeemed those who simply say no to god and become the the most corrupt version of themselves He says, all day long, we are in some degree helping each other to one or the other of these destinations. It is in the light of these overwhelming possibilities. It is with the awe and the circumspection proper to them that we should conduct all our dealings with one another, all friendships, all loves, all play, even all politics. This is key for me. This is the biggest thing I take away from this. So what? We share Christ's future glory. So what? So what is the way I treat others, not only that Jesus loves, but that are headed to this level of glory? Most of us, even if you're a young person, most of us have have memories of when we were kids and adults interacted with us, and they might have done so in a way that really encouraged us or maybe discouraged us greatly because there's a temptation to minimize the glory, if you will, of the small stature of a child, emotionally or physically, so that we might treat them in a way we wouldn't a full-grown adult. We might take liberties with a child because we think their status isn't like my status. Just as you and I have stories in our minds about the way adults treated us in our childhood, and I'll bet all of us do, when we get to heaven... We're going to have memories of how we treated others and how others treated us, aren't we? Now, at some point in heaven, all the tears are wiped away. All the hurts are gone. But wouldn't you like to get to heaven and be glad instead of regretful when you see this glorified version of your friend or your neighbor or your spouse or the person across the row from you at church? Wouldn't you be glad for the way you treated them because you knew who they were in Christ and to what end God was moving them and you were interacting with them today in light of their future glory? Wouldn't that be a good thing? That's what Lewis is talking about. And I think that's the thing for us. That's my big takeaway. If I remember not only that God loves you, you know, if you're offended by another Christian, we forgive, right? Because we've been forgiven. And we say to ourselves, I pray when I pray for someone else, Lord, I know you love them as much as you love me. That helps me put things right in my mind again. They're not the enemy. They're my father's child, just like I am, equally loved. But beyond that, they share a future glory, which I should respect now because that's God's work in them. So Lewis's big takeaway is treat others in a way that takes into account their future glory, the end to which they're going. We have the glory, as it were, now of a child, but we're going to have the glory of a grown-up adult in Christ's very image, and we should take that into consideration when we interact with each other. I've got a number of verses I'm going to let you guys read on your own. I do want to point this out, and then we'll go to a self-test here in just a second. Every time in the Scripture that it's talking about our future glory, it's followed by an imperative. In other words, when God's talking to us about our future glory, He doesn't just say, here's a nice concept put in the back of your mind. He tells us, you're going to share my glory, and so this is what you're to do. And so just as an example, 2 Corinthians 3.18, you're going to be transformed into God's glory. He says so, 4 verse 1, so don't lose heart, because that's your future. Don't be discouraged now. You've got this glorious end to which you are living and moving. So you can put up with the vicissitudes of life. You can can take the blows of life and remain encouraged because this is where you're going. This is who you are in Christ. This is who God in Christ has made you to be. So don't be discouraged. And each one of those is the same. I'll let you look at those on your own time and and just get to the self-test we've got at the end. The first thing on these... When you get to the so what, yet yeah, labor in vain, uh, have I given myself and my sins to God in Christ so that I can share his life and glory forever? Nothing else matters beyond this. You know, Lewis talks about the future glorious self on one hand, but the horror, the nightmarish horror that we would be in the full status of our corruption if we deny the Lord of life and choose the second death instead of the Lord of glory. This is the only thing at the end of the day that matters. Have I given myself and my sins to Christ for the exchange, the great exchange of His life and His glory forever? And then am I committed to... We're getting ahead of ourselves, guys. Yep. Uh, One more, I think. Back, Back one more. Thank you. Am I committed to and working at putting off my sins and putting on Christ? This is out of Colossians 3. Because of your future glory, Paul says, put off your sins. And he enumerates them. And then he says, put on the Lord Jesus Christ, His character. We're supposed to be working at this because of our future glory. Am I living in, am I standing firmly in the truths declared in God's Word? That's out of 2 Thessalonians. This is interesting to me too. The doctrines Paul's talking about in 2 in, uh, Thessalonians are primarily prophetic about the return of Christ. Jesus is returning. He says, don't let... Don't let go of that. Hold on to the truth that you were given. Am I living in and standing firmly in the truths of God's word? Am I consecrating my body? This is out of Romans 8 and then Romans 12. And my all to God daily as my reasonable act of worship. That, that comes following the guarantee in Romans 8 that the end for you and me is glory in Christ's image. I'm supposed to present myself to God as, an, as a sacrifice on the altar, that God has my body and my all. Am I striving for consistent personal purity? That's from 1 John 3. We know that when he appears, we'll see him, we'll be like him, and it says everyone who sets his hope on this purifies himself. Think of the oily, impure ghost and the transformation. That's what we're supposed to be doing today. And guys, in our culture, that's a lot of work. It's a lot of work to be intentionally pure. And this was the last one. This is from 1 Corinthians 15. Am I remaining at work where God has me until he calls me to himself, knowing even the feeblest effort now is tied to a future glory beyond compare? It can be highly discouraging to work long and hard and try to be faithful and look around and see very little fruit. And Paul says, keep at it. That the resurrection and your future glory should encourage you to continue working until God calls you to himself. So stay at it, he says. And last, guys, since we're winding down totally, the the quote from Jesus in Matthew 7, uh, 24, uh, he hears my word and does it, is like the wise man. That's really a definition. It's an image of faith. At the end of the day, we're just talking about as believers living by faith. Faith is the rock that we stand upon. We take in God's word and we act on it. We don't just say it. Remember, it's actions that prove the reality of what we believe. So on all these things and all the, the subjects we've talked about, God and sin and judgment and repentance, all of those things, at the end of the day, we take in the truth of God's word, that's the front end of faith, and we act on it, that's the back end of faith. That's what gives us the life on the rock. Lord, thanks for giving us everything we need for life and godliness, and Lord, thanks for a wild promise beyond imagination that we will share your very glory. Lord Jesus, help us to live in a way now that we'll be glad of in the future. Lord, would you help us to remember our neighbor's transformation and future glory so that we treat them as the glorious sons and daughters in you that they really are in Jesus' name.